Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shabbat Shalom. My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and thank you for joining us for our Arab Shabbat broadcast here on Shalom.tv and on all of our uh, mobile apps and television apps that we have. We thank you for inviting us into your home each and every week where we worship the Lord, where we set apart the Sabbath, and we hear from the instruction, the word of the Lord, the Torah portion, the Haftorah, and the Brit Hadashah. Right now it's December 20th, and uh, we are very excited as we are closing out the year 2019 here at Line and Land Ministries. Um, we always ask that if you enjoy this broadcast and enjoy the services of this ministry, uh, that you would prayerfully consider making a donation at this time. Um, it, you can go to llgive.com and make your donation there, and there are several different options uh, for your giving uh, that you can select there on that website. We also have one last event for this year. We uh, are having a Hanukkah conference next week on December 27th and 28th in Norman, Oklahoma. It's not too late to register, and we'd love to see you come through that door. Um, it's on a Friday and a Saturday. You can go to HanukkahEvent.com, register your family there. Teens and children are free, and we hope to have a wonderful time worshiping the Lord, having uh, some kids' programs, youth programs, and fantastic teaching. Our brother Brad Scott will be joining us as a guest teacher as well, so we look forward to seeing everyone there. Now, let us uh, join together with our families and let us set apart the uh, Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing Amen. over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGahafin Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, 
We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. (laughs) Husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful wives that you've given to us, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, for beautiful wives of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for my wife and the blessing that she is to our home and to our family. Bless her, encourage her, and strengthen her as she teaches and educates the children, as she wakes up in the morning to take care of them and see about the ways of the household. Father, I thank you for the wonderful blessing she is to me and to our home. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. So we love you and bless you and thank you for all of these things, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen. Amen. Now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. (laughs) Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach. Baruch Arunai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michumocha. Micha mocha, ba'elim Adonai. Micha mocha, nedahar b'chodesh. Nohorat echilot, Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen.
And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et hashabbat, la'asot et hashabbat, ladrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom, b'nei Yisrael, otit le'olam, kesheshet yamim asadonai, et hashamayim, v'et ha'aret, v'yom hashavi, shabbat, v'yinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed. Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha, Bechol Levavcha, Ufkol Nashicha, Uvechol Meodecha. Veheyu hadevarim haale asher nechime zavcha hayom alevavecha. Vashinantam lavenecha, vadepardabam beshiftecha, beyetecha, uvlechtecha, vederechu shakbika, uvkumika. Ukeshatam la ota yadecha, veheyu la totavolt binenecha, uketatama mozuzo betecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Do I have a doubt that kept my forefathers out? Can I make it past the curse? Will my heart be sure when I stand at the door? Will I need my eyes to see? Oh, I don't know. Let me have no doubt that will keep me out of the promise you have for me. 
Sometimes I'm sure that you're at the door Then doubt comes over me When the shofar sounds will I step out Well, I need my ears to be Well, I need my ears to be Oh, I don't know Oh, y'all touch my eyes that I may cry. Let my tears fall at your feet. Oh, y'all break my heart so I will start to trust you and be. To trust you and believe Oh, I don't know how I bleed Have mercy on me Don't let me stumble or fall Let me have Of the promise you had for me, of the promise you had for me. Yeshua, you made 
I can see and I can speak. I can breathe and I can smell of your creation. How lovely your creation is. You took care of me when I was small, when I was sick. Now I know that I am healed and no one can tell me different. Your eyes shown you the path through the woods, the sparkling water, are all Your has shown you the path through the woods, the sparkling waters are oh so beautiful. Oh, Yah, I ask that you help me heal the broken heart. For the time that I was given, I'm as happy as ever. But I know that I have my time in. Y'all have shown the path through the woods, the sparkling water, are oh so beautiful. Y'all have shown the path through the woods, the sparkling water, are oh so beautiful. Keep me to your Shalom. Please join us for the reading of Parashah Vayashef. Chapter 37. Now Yaakov lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Yaakov. Yosef, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Yosef brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Yisrael loved Yosef more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Yosef had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Now he had still another dream, and related it to his brothers, and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. 
he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept these sayings in mind. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Yisrael said to Yosef, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. A man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, What are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dotan. So Yosef went after his brothers and found them at Dotan. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast has devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuven heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuven further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Yosef reached his brothers that they stripped Yosef of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh, on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Yehuda said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some of the Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted up Yosef out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. Thus they brought Yosef into Egypt. Now Reuven returned to the pit, and behold, Yosef was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. He returned then to his brothers and said, The boy is not here. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Yosef's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Yosef has surely been torn to pieces. So Yaakov tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Chapter 38. And it came about at that time that Yehuda departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulami, whose name was Hira. Yehuda saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. She conceived and bore a son, and he named him Er. Then she conceived again and bore a son, and he named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Chizib that she bore him. 
Now Yehuda took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Yehuda's firstborn, was evil in the sight of Adonai. So Adonai took his life. Then Yehuda said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went in to his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of Adonai. So he took his life also. Then Yehuda said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Yehuda, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Yehuda went up to the sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hirah the Adolumi. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Yehuda saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, Will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? She said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So she gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Yehuda sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulumi, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enaim? But they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Yehuda and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute there. Then Yehuda said, Let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I set this young goat, but you did not find her. Now it was about three months later that Yehuda was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is with a child by harlotry. Then Yehuda said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Yehuda recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. It came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand. And he was named Zerah. Chapter 39. Now Yosef had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there. Adonai was with Yosef. So he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian.
Now his master saw that Adonai was with him and how Adonai caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Yosef found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, Adonai blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Yosef. Thus Adonai's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Yosef's charge. And with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Yosef was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked at with desire at Yosef, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in his house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against Elohim? As she spoke to Yosef day after day, he did not listen to her to lie with her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought us to us came in to me to make sport of me, and as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard these words of his wife, which he, she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. So Yosef's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. But Adonai was with Yosef and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Yosef's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Yosef's charge because Adonai was with him and whatever he did, Adonai made to prosper. Chapter 40. Then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in the confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Yosef was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Yosef in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Yosef came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, We have had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. Then Yosef said to them, Do not interpretations belong to Elohim? Tell it to me, please. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Yosef and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. And it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Yosef said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. 
Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should have put me in the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head, and in the top basket there was some of all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Yosef answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh off of you. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, just as Yosef had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Yosef, but forgot him. Thank you for joining us for the reading of Parashah Vayeshev. Now in Parashah Vayeshev, there's 14 chapters in the Torah, altogether that are devoted to the life of Yosef, starting here in Parashah Vayeshev. Now those 14 chapters that are devoted to Yosef's life are more than anyone else with the exception of one person, his great father, Avram, or Avraham. Here we see in this parasha, the young Yosef has dreams. He tells his brothers these dreams. His brothers, of course, hate him for that. And then he's sold into slavery. He ends up in the house of Potiphar, a high-ranking official in the Egyptian government. Now, we read in Genesis chapter 39, verses 6 through 9, Now, Yosef was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Yosef, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against Elohim? Yosef responds with a question that reveals his heart. How shall I do this great evil and sin against Elohim? He didn't attempt to stand there and overcome the temptation. Instead, he fled from it. He literally ran out of the house and left his garment behind. In regards to most types of sin, Paul tells us to stand firm. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. But in regards to sexual impurity, Paul advises a completely different course of action. Run for your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the, um, the immoral man sins against his own body. And then he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on Adonai from a pure heart. Like Yosef, we may find ourselves tempted to commit adultery in some form or fashion, perhaps not physically, perhaps only with our emotions and our spirit. Maybe it's just in our hearts. Will we entertain such thoughts and thus commit adultery in our hearts? 
Or will we flee from those temptations, even to the point of sacrificing our valued possessions in the process? Yosef left behind the only link he had to his family, his garment, the same type of garment that was taken from him when his brothers sold him into slavery. Yet again, his garment is stripped from him. He leaves it behind. Yosef, the one person in Scripture about which no sin or transgression is recorded. Now, that's not to suggest that he didn't do wrong, but we don't have record of him not committing an error. So, as a result, of course, Yosef represents a perfect forerunner or a type of Messiah. Like Yosef, we should be conducting ourselves in such a way that when our lives are over on this earth, there will be no fault recorded regarding the way that we lived. May we live truly in a fashion such as Yosef did. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, this week's Haftorah portion comes from the prophet Amos, and it begins in Amos um, chapter 2, beginning at verse 6, and it extends through chapter, um, chapter 3, I believe. Does it go all the way to 4? No. Chapter 3 and verse uh, 8. It's not that many verses in this particular thing. There is a parallel passage in Zechariah, uh, but I'm going to focus in on what Amos has to say here and tie it into our Torah portion to reinforce a particular teaching that comes out in the Torah portion for us. If you would, let me read this short passage to you first. And then we'll go back in and examine it a little closer. So beginning in the book of Amos, at verse 6, follow along as I read there for you. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. And those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless and also turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. And on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, though his height was like the height of cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. And it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I led you in the wilderness forty years, that you might take possession of the land of, of the Amorites. Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, and some of your young men to be Nazarites, is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophet, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I am weighed down beneath you as a wagon is weighed down when filled with sheaves. Fight, flight will perish from the swift and the stalwart will strengthen his power. Now, nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape, nor will he who rides the horse save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel. 
against the entire family when she brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. As lion as a lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Amos's uh, message. First of all, let me give you a little background about the prophet Amos. If you want to do a just a basic classic Bible study on what is God's definition of the word righteousness, then you want to study the book of Amos. Because Amos is the prophet who um, emphasizes in all of his expressions, and this one included, the basic definition of what is God's definition of righteousness. Now, let me, let me give you a super simplified definition of that. Let me summarize basically what Amos is teaching on that subject, and you'll see how it fits into this as well. Righteousness, basic righteousness is doing, just simply doing the right thing. But the righteousness that we're talking about here, the righteousness that is, um, um, that is spoken of in the scriptures is doing the right thing according to God's definition of what is the right thing. Uh, if a man goes out and does what he thinks is right, that's self-righteousness. Uh, but the righteousness of God, which we're referring to and being taught in the scriptures, it's the right thing, but it would be according to the standards of what God would say would be done. Um, there are a lot of people who make decisions in business and in circumstances of life where they find themselves a little bit between a rock and a hard place, and they have to make some choices. And they're not necessarily so comfortable with the choices, uh, but they will make a decision to, and they'll try to find what is the right decision for that. We sometimes refer to those people who make a principal decision that they were choosing the righteousness and the truths of God over convenience and, and things like that. Whereas the man who, you know, it goes for the short-term expedient profit or benefit and, and violates the, the basic overarching principles that they, they, they made what they thought was the right decision, but it wasn't guided by God. And, and by the way, they'll suffer ill effects from it. You know, these are some of the most basic life lessons. In fact, most, um, most movies and stories that we read, uh, things where it's uh, the affairs and events of other people. The writers love to take the, the cast of characters and put them in these conflict situations, and they have to make these decisions. And, and that's what people identify with. Oh, I have to make a decision like that. Do I make a decision for my family versus my job? Do I make a decision versus I'll, I'll make some money over here, but I'll, but I'll breach a, a, a relationship with a friend? You know, we're, we're always faced with those. And righteousness, 
would be doing the right thing according to God's standard. Man's righteousness tends to make decisions based on what is expedient for the moment. Now, the reason why this portion gets tied into this passage out of Amos, gets tied into the Torah portion that we have for this week, it begins right off the bat in verse 6 of chapter 2. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Joseph's brethren didn't like Joseph. They didn't like uh, that he had reported on some of them to the father. They didn't like the fact that the father showed some favoritism to him, that he was actually telegraphing that the birthright blessing was going to go to him. Uh, and because he was the son of Rachel, uh, uh, Jacob's beloved, uh, that was different from the descendants that had come from Leah. And they picked up on all of this, and they um, they didn't like it. And then on top of that, Joseph gets these dreams, and he's walking around sharing, openly sharing with them about that God's been talking to him, and God has a destiny for him in the future, and they just resented the heck out of that. Uh, especially when they were able to interpret the dream, and it said something about they would be bowing down to him one day. That That was just too much. So even though he's their brother, yet they felt it was expedient and in their best interest, they just get rid of him. And as in this Torah portion, why we hear about how Joseph approaches his brethren, and we have these three different personalities of Joseph's brethren emerge. Um, first of all, Simeon, who says, let's kill him. Uh, uh, Reuben is going to try to secretly deliver him, but he won't stand up to his brethren. And then you have Judah, who in the end is going to be credited with the guy that says, well, let's just sell him. Now, everybody's trying to figure out what is the right thing to do in the problem that is facing them. But fundamentally, what was really at stake? What was really at stake was that Joseph was righteous according to God's standards. He was serving his father. He was being obedient. He had been sent by his father to see to the health and welfare of the flock and the brethren. That was what his business was. He was coming out to see to their good. If they would have had a need, he would have reported it back. He would have assisted them and helped them. They don't want his help. Matter of fact, they don't even want him as a brother anymore. And so you see the story of how they bind him. They throw him in the pit. And then a glum calls some traders, uh, comes along, and uh, that's where the idea comes up to sell him. And they sell him for, according to the story, for 20 geras. Uh, if we go back into the ancient denominations of monies, that was equivalent to about five shekels. That's a minor value. That's not a, an extensive value whatsoever. In fact, it is, according to the commentaries that we have on this, uh, two uh, geras, uh, that's what every brother got. There were ten brothers. They both got two, two geras. Two geras will buy you a pair of sandals. That was the ancient price of a, a cheap pair, you know, a little, little covering on the bottom of your foot, little tie sandal that uh, the, the two geras would pay for it. So look at what Amos says here. For three transgressions of Israel, for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. 
So that's what ties this portion back to the story of Joseph being sold by his brethren. It ties directly into it. Now, with that, Amos goes on to say the following. Uh, Verse 7, these who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless. Um, And the word pant is kind of an interesting thing there. It means means sprinkle. They sprinkle dust on the, the poor and the helpless. In other words, they, they take the, the, the humble poor and they, they make them even more humble, you know, before them. It's a, it's a, it's a thing about, um, um, you ever seen this where somebody, um, they want to make themselves bigger so they have to make other people lower? You know, they, well, that, that's what this is. It says, I'm going to make myself look bigger by making you look worse. So I'm going to sprinkle, throw some little dirt on your head, make you look like the humble, you know. You know, because normally when you were showing humility before God, uh, part of the throwing dirt in the air is to humble yourself, to make yourself low uh, before the Lord. Well, the idea is you're supposed to throw the dirt in the air and humble yourself. But in this case, oh, I'll humble you. So he takes dirt and he throws dirt on it. Well, you, even today, if you take dirt and you throw dirt on somebody, you are... You're making a, a very negative statement against this other human being. I mean, you are really putting them down. Uh, you're, you're equating them as being equal with dirt. By the way, that's, that's pretty low. That's a pretty low esteem of a person. And so he's speaking to not only have you done this to the righteous, you know, for a trivial, you valued someone in a trivial way, but then you have humbled even the humble. And caused humility to be even greater upon them. And turn aside the way of the humble. Now, in the Hebrew, the translators struggle with this, uh, where it says, turn aside the way of the humble. Actually, the word way there, a better definition of that for us would be the rights. You turn aside the rights of the humble. The, the rights of the poor. You, you ignore their rights. Um, in our country, it doesn't make any difference of what economic station you are in. Uh, our Bill of Rights says for every citizen that you have the right to assemble, you have the right to speak, you have the right to religion. And what, what they're saying here is this, this people would even um, harm the rights of the humble. Now, they would assert their rights for sure, but then they would harm the rights of the humble. And uh, it's typical when you have one, a person acting in a tyrannical fashion, they'll be all honorable, but they're very dishonoring to everybody else. And in the case of they would be asserting their rights to the harm of the rights of the others. If I could just for a moment, um, and I'm not trying to get political on this thing, but it's such a shining good example. Okay, the um, I understand that uh, in our nation, some of the racial tension that we have going on here, that when we hear accounts of where a police officer, for whatever reason, has, you know, shot uh, a black man. Okay, it immediately piques everybody's attention. 
was this a racist event? In other words, was the police officer and the authority of the state, was it lording it over uh, the black man, the humble man, and was it doing harm there to it? Now, I understand that in times past, ugly things like that did happen. But in the course of my generation, in the course of my life, you would have to agree with me that on a broad-based level, uh, those past things have definitely changed. And that a person in authority doing that to a minority, uh, to, to a black man in our country, would not be tolerated by the general citizenry anymore. In fact, if, if he were to try to act that way in public, he would be shouted down. Uh, not just by black people, he would be shouted down by other citizens. That, that we, you know, quote, we've changed that atmosphere in our country as a result of the presidencies that we've had, the civil rights legislation, affirmative action, all of those things were taken by the government to change the thinking. I remember going, um, you know, uh, in the military and getting specific training uh, to change the culture of all the different places where he'd come from uh, so that we could counter the background culture that we had grown up in. And, and begin to see things from a righteous standard. In other words, from, from who has rights and, and, and we don't oppress the rights of others. Well, the definition of we were, we were seeking righteousness, you know, in all of these things. And I've seen the transition take place. I've seen it take the, how, how we regard women and the issues of sexual harassment. I've seen it with, in, in racial stuff, having to do with minorities and so forth. But here lately, it seems like in the last couple of years, we've gone further with this thing. And all of a sudden, we have a police officer who's defending his life, shoots a black man. And then all of a sudden, the community and the community leaders are now calling for this, uh, this program called Black Lives Matter, where... They're going to the point of advocating violence and harm to police officers for so-called past transgressions or false reports about what had transpired in these particular situations. And by the way, there's police officers getting killed. That is not righteousness. That is not correct. I mean, if you, if you want to stand up and defend the rights of someone that those rights are being abused. I'm all for that. But that doesn't give you license then to go to another and take away their rights. That is not the way you do things. And right now in our country, we have gone through, there's a big divide in our country. And and, uh, one of the perspectives that I've heard recently that really speaks to what, what the prophet's speaking to here is that we have half the country who wants to get back to righteousness and proper rights for everyone, okay? But then we have another group who've decided, now uh, we, we have our own self-righteousness, and we're going to be right, and everybody else is classified as wrong. And so, you know, here recently, as a result, uh, why instead of saying that the President-elect Trump has won the election fair and square. No, they want to illegitimize it. And basically they're saying that all white um, white men are racist and they're the ones that actually elected them. 
Now, that was in the campaign where they were regarding other citizens that would be not voting for Hillary, being referred to as deplorables. We're all racists. You know, we're all uh, white supremacists. Um, what a bunch of nonsense. That's what you classify somebody who stands up for the right thing as? You know, there's a whole segment of our populace have completely lost the definition of what righteousness is. And they've chosen something else. It's more emotionalism than it is righteousness. And it's whatever they feel and they think and, and however many nasty words they can come up with, that's their position. Um, it's madness. It's ridiculous. When Joseph's brethren decided to do harm to Joseph, there was nothing about righteousness in their deeds. It was all emotionalism. They had gone mad for crying out loud. You're going to do this to your own brother? Yeah, they're going to do it to their own brother. They're going to destroy their own family. They're going to do harm to their father. Of course, were they thinking about doing harm to their father? That No, no, they weren't thinking about harming him. But that was one of the consequences to it. They don't, you know, when people get into emotionalism and this kind of, you know, self-righteousness, they don't care what the consequences are. They don't see cause and effect. The people who seek out righteousness, they base judgments and decisions on cause and effect. And they, they will hold to the principles and make decisions for the principles because they know this is not a singular issue. This is going to come up again and again and again. And if we don't hold the line right now, we're, we're going to be facing this again and again and again. We've got to hold the line. We've got to hold to the principles. We've got to do the right thing every time. We can't do the wrong thing the first time and then hope that the second time is going to work out. If you're going to do the right thing, you've got to do it right away. On the first instance, and on the second one, and on the third one, you've got to stick to and continue to do the right thing. And the reason is because when you're in that kind of thinking, you're looking at cause and effect. So if you go back to the passage Amos, here's Amos trying to teach righteousness. And so that's the reason why he explains, first of all, here are the travesties that are taking place. Here are the highly unrighteous things that are taking place, uh, turning away the, the humble. And if a man and a father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name, for crying out loud, the Torah is very explicit on this sin and says that's an abomination. Do not do that. And on garments, take it as pledges, they stretch out every altar. The garment that's taken in pledge is supposed to be returned to the lender when the sun goes down so that he can stay warm. But instead, they're laying them down and sleeping on them. They're using the garments that were pledged to them, and they're putting them down, making a nicer pad so they can sleep on them. And, and by the way, they're sleeping right by the altar. They think they're righteous. He's saying, these are transgressions. These are not my definition of righteousness. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Oh, my goodness. Um, literally, what they're talking about is that you, you lorded it over the people, 
Okay, you find them excessively for it. Then you took the wine and then you drink that before the Lord, like that's supposed to be an offering to the Lord, the libation offering before. You think the Lord is going to receive that libation offering and so forth? That's a, that's a joy. You know, it, it goes back to the same thing. Let's say that you steal some money. You now take some of that money and say, "Well, I'm going to I'm going to tithe." See, the Lord considers that to be a, a, a tithe to Him. No, he's not going to accept that. Well, I'm, I'm just making a nice offering. He don't want your offering. You know, you've transgressed the commandments. It's an abomination for you to do such things. Well, this is what Israel has become to the point that their definition of doing the right thing has come to this ridiculousness. Now, the description that I've given you here, it's, it, it's, it's drawing us back to the story of Joseph and his brethren. This ridiculous idea that the brethren thought they were doing the right thing. Doing great harm to their brother Joseph. To their future brother Benjamin, who will grow up without his brother. To Jacob. To the mothers. The rest of the extended family. The harm that they're doing. They think they're just dealing with Joseph. No. Now, there's also that story about Judah and Tamar, where God obviously was going to teach, teach Judah some lessons out of this, personal lessons out of it. But then what Amos the prophet is trying to do is speak to all of us and say, look, guys, look, let's, let's get back on the right track of doing the righteousness of God. I want you to consider a couple of things so we can start changing our thinking Verse, verse 9, he says, Yet it is I who destroyed the Amorite before them, though his height was like the height of cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. Let's uh, talk about that for a moment. One of the interesting statements <laughs> that is made by God to Abraham when he prophesied that his descendants would go down into Egypt is he referenced the Amorites. The Amorites. Why, why would he talk about the Amorites? He was talking about this people that were dwelling in the land of Canaan, the promised land, and that were taking root into the land at the same days as Abraham was there. And God says, the reason why I'm going to have the children of Israel stay out of the land for a while, and when I bring back, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. That God had a plan where he was going to take the children of Israel, park them down in Egypt for a while, let them go a couple of generations, grow and mature, and then come out as a nation of people. And part of his plan is, I'm going to use you to come back and judge the Amorites. And Amos is reminding, remember when we came up out of Egypt, what happened to us? We went and we destroyed the Amorites, two Amorite kings. Wiped them out. In fact, that was part of the, that was part of the testimony to the surrounding nations. Oh my goodness, these Israelites, they're not to be messed with. Because the Amorites at that point had become a very powerful and mighty people. In fact, he refers to them. They were as high as the cedars of Lebanon and rooted very much. You know what? Archaeologists can barely find anything about the Amorite people now. 
That's how destroyed they were. The Amorites, if you'd have matched them up against the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, the Amorites would have completely overshadowed them. In fact, the Amorites were considered to be the powerhouse in the area, in the land of Canaan. But God brought the children of Israel back in. Now, you don't, you hear about the conquests of the battles. For the most part, Joshua was taking out the Amorites. Not only did he bring them out of Egypt with all of the things that happened in Egypt, but when he brought them into the land, he used them as an instrument to take out the Amorites. Which, by the way, speaks to something else about understanding righteousness of God and speaks to the great story that we have of Joseph and his brethren. Now, bear with me for just a few moments. Uh, God has a great plan for what's going on here. Believe me, he's planned this thing out. Now, along the way, you and I get to make some decisions about do we want to join forces with God? Do we want to recognize God? Uh, do we want to be part of God's plan? And if we make a decision to be obedient and to trust and to believe God, then we see ourselves as being part of the plan. And in fact, everybody who gets involved at that level and that relationship with God, we look back and we say, wow, I can see how God moved in my life. And, and I'm here where I am today because of God's hand on my life. And I'm, I'm part of his plan. But let me tell you something. Everybody else is also part of God's plan. Some people are stored up for destruction. God planned it. The Amorites were stored up for destruction. So God used Israel to wipe the Amorites out, uh, gave, brought judgment to the Amorites, and at the same time trained Israel how to become a powerful nation to be able to defend themselves. I look back experiences on my life, and, and there's clearly some difficulties and troubles that came in my life, but God was using those to train me and perfect me and, and, and make me wiser and sometimes to humble me and uh, so forth. And the fact of the matter is, even people who don't choose the Lord, they're being used by the Lord. They're a part of his plan. This is going to be the real tragedy for a lot of people when they have to come up and, and face God, give an account for God. They're going to look back, and it's going to be revealed to them how they were part of God's plan, but they chose not to be with God in the plan. But they did God's will. They, they performed part of God's plan. Their misbehavior was part of God's plan so that God could establish his kingdom and so forth. Uh, I always tell this um, little humorous bit. I've told this uh, joke before uh, about the man that's praying uh, very uh, devoutly to the Lord. So God, oh, please use me. Please, I want, I want to serve you and please use me. And suddenly the angel Gabriel shows up. And says to him, uh, God has heard your prayer. God is definitely going to be using you in his great plan here on the earth. He says, oh, good. What does God want me to do? Do you want me to be another Moses or another Paul? Or, or what, what does God want me to do? He said, no. No, God wants you to live a mediocre life, make a whole series of poor decisions, and others will learn from your example, and you'll help them in the kingdom. He said, well, I was hoping to be a Moses or a Paul. And he said, we already got those guys. We need a guy just like you right now. One of the things that we, we are part of God's plan. 
whether you want to realize it or not, you are. Now, I think it's better if we pay attention to the Lord and be part of the good parts of his plan and join with him in agreements of the good parts of his plan, as opposed to walking around ignorantly and still being used by God, but we don't know it. And you, what you have is this classic story of Joseph and his brethren. Joseph is, do, is obedient. He's the righteous. He is part of God's great plan of deliverance. In fact, Joseph can recount through the dreams. And later on, God sent me beforehand to preserve you and the family. He sees his purpose. He sees why he had to go through what he had to go through. The other brethren didn't see it at all. But they were instrumental in implementing God's plan so that Joseph could be positioned to deliver the whole family. In a strange, sort of weird way, they were part of the plan too. Now, what uh, what the rest of this goes into and the rest of this thing is, is pr- the prophet keeps asking for the cause and effect. Take a look at the results. What resulted? What was the cause? What happened? See, righteous thinking sees cause and effect. God has promised. God has done so in the past. Should I trust God and should I go with what God said? Well, cause and effect, that would be righteous thinking. Oh, I don't believe in cause and effect. I I think it's all happenstance. That would not be righteous thinking. That would be foolishness. That's essentially what Amos is trying to teach here. The definition of righteousness, and we're looking back at the example of Joseph and his brethren. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Sabbath, and thank you for the teaching of the Torah and the Haftor. Help us, Lord, to get a proper definition of your righteousness especially for the affairs of our life, the decisions of our life. Help us and lead us and teach us in your ways, we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Hold your finger there at the end of chapter 3, where we will begin our instruction for the Brit Hadashah portion. And let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for all the teaching and instruction that you give to us through your word and your instruction. And Father, as we uh, go into the uh, story of talking about the patriarch Joseph, Father, I pray that we are encouraged and strengthened in our most holy faith uh, in in Messiah Yeshua. Father, be with us as we go and teach the word on this week. And we love you and bless you and thank you in all of these things. In Yeshua's name, amen. So our Torah portion is Vayeshev, where we are now introduced to the story of Joseph, the uh, one of the youngest sons of Jacob. We know Jacob had 12 sons, and he had come back into the land after spending uh, many years, 20 years, with his uncle Laban. And he comes and settles into the land, and his children start to grow into manhood. And in Genesis chapter 37 is when we start to go into the story of Joseph. Now, as we begin the story of Joseph, any time that you've either heard me teach the Torah or any other Torah teacher, Messianic teacher, talking about Joseph, there is an uncanny parallel between the life of Joseph and the life of Yeshua the Messiah. There is any teaching that we do on Joseph, if we're studying the Torah, 
we have to, we cannot help but point to Yeshua the Messiah as far as when we start talking about the themes of what Joseph experienced in his life, such as, to mention a few, being hated by his brethren, being sold by his brethren, being falsely accused, being thrown into prison. And then as we continue on for the next couple of weeks, we will go into the whole concept and the whole story about how Yeshua, when he was risen up, he was put and he stood at the right hand of the of God and that he has been ascended to the throne of heaven. And then we have the life of Joseph going from the lowest of low in the land of Egypt as a slave, as a prisoner, and being elevated all the way to being the viceroy of Egypt. As I start to describe some of these things, you can start to see some of the broad parallels between Yeshua and Joseph. This is the first thing I want to start with as we go into the New Testament readings and we look and we teach some of the same principles of the Torah portion from the New Testament. So if you would begin at Matthew chapter 3, and this is when Yeshua, after being uh, baptized by John the Baptist, and a voice from heaven comes, the Spirit of God comes and speaks of Yeshua. And we're at the very end of chapter 3 of Matthew, we have the amazing words of this voice coming from heaven. And when it comes and it says this, and it says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It is very obvious that we see in the life of Yeshua that he is the Son of God and that he is loved by his Father, our Heavenly Father. This connects, of course, directly to the testimony originally spoken of by of Joseph, where that he was loved by his father, Jacob, more so than all of his other brothers. We know the story, of course, that Joseph went and he spoke an ill report of his brothers. So it doesn't say that it was untrue. He spoke that his brothers were doing something they shouldn't have been doing. He came, reported it to his father. This grieved his father and reprimanded his brothers. And then he was elevated in status by the giving of a coat or a tunic of many colors. When it comes to in ancient practice, and this is the case even with today, what you wear is absolutely a symbol of one's status. What you are clothed in, how you dress, how you carry yourself. And we see in the life of Joseph, he was given this coat. Look, back in those times, nobody wore robes of multiple colors or bright colors or anything like that, unless you were royalty, unless you were clearly someone of status that did you ever wear anything like that? Well, that's exactly what happened when Joseph, when Jacob put that tunic upon Joseph. He is giving him authority over his brothers in status, in, in just the way you look at the guy and say, that looks like the guy that's in charge based on the way he looks. And he loved his son. Jacob did. God himself loves his son, Yeshua, loves our Savior, the Messiah, and he came. And he says this, in the New Testament, speaking of how he has, that he is loved by his father. We also know that all authority, this is obviously after the testimony of the Messiah and before he ascended, he spoke and he said, all authority has been given to Yeshua over heaven and earth. This ties, of course, to the dreams that Joseph had, that Joseph had these dreams and he told his brothers. Now, we always talk about how he probably shouldn't have told his brothers those dreams because it made them hate him even more. But he had that dream. Remember that dream where the sun, the moon, the stars all bowed to him and that this was interpreted even by his father, Jacob, that he would also bow to his son and that his mothers would bow to his son, to, 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 to Joseph. 
Well, this is exactly why Yeshua, when we talk about, a lot of people want to debate, what's the, the, the comparison of the deity of Yeshua and what authority does he have? And he speaks of his father being greater than he, but he also says his father and he are one. And so all, I don't ever want to get into the idea and concept that we define that Yeshua is somehow less than God. He, we, we take what he said when he said that his father was greater than he. I take that for what it says. However, I don't question the power and the deity of Yeshua because it says after he was resurrected, it says all authority of heaven and earth has been given to him. He has all authority. And it's in the same way that, that Jacob bowed to his son, who was the viceroy of Egypt, basically the ruler of the world at the time. I'm getting ahead of myself in the story of Joseph, of course. But this is the connection of then, that's the fulfillment of the dream that Joseph had in the same way that all authority over heaven and earth has been given to Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, when we're talking about him, and then we, we have the story in our Torah portion, of course, about how Joseph was sent by his father sent by his father to go and find his brothers. They, they said they were tending his flocks in Shechem, and he says, I will send you to go, go and see about the welfare of the flock and the welfare of your brothers. We can see the direct parallel to the Messiah himself, being sent by God to this earth. In all the testimony, when it's talking about to, to, the, to Mary and to all the instruction of what, that, that when, this, when he came, when the Messiah came, when, this, when he came, he was sent by God. And what, of course, did he do? He came and he's seen what's going on here on earth. He came to teach us, teach us his word, teach us his instruction. He was sent to be the king of Israel, the king in Jerusalem, and that this was all prophecy of what the Messiah was going to do. And that he was sent by his father. Now, the Messiah comes and he sees about the welfare of the brethren. What Yeshua found on earth was, unfortunately, not that great. Many people that did not believe. Many people that, that, that doubted the Messiah, that didn't follow him. Now, he found many followers as well. He found many people that, that believed in him, that followed him. Twelve disciples came to learn from him. And so he came to see about the welfare of the creation when the Messiah was sent to this earth. In the same way, Joseph was sent to see about the welfare of the flocks of Jacob. Jacob, the flocks that he accumulated from his uncle Laban. This was his property. This was his livelihood and his life that he had acquired. In the same way, the Messiah was sent to see about the creation that God had made. Now, when he came, though, of course, we have all the testimony of Yeshua and what he did. When it came down to it toward the end of his life, and this is what we actually see in the story of Joseph, is we see many of the parallels of Joseph's life that are recorded in Scripture tie more to the end of the Messiah's life than perhaps the whole duration of his ministry. We talk about him being sold by his brothers, plotted to die even by his brothers. If you remember, when Joseph did find his flocks, when Joseph did find his brothers, what was the first thing that they said? And they said, look, here comes this dream of dreams. Let's kill him. Let's throw him in a pit. Those, the, the ones that were, should be his brothers, the ones who were his brethren, they plotted against him. Well, that's exactly what happened to the Messiah. And we have the, the reference here in John chapter 11 at verse thir, uh, 53 that is all about basically the, the, the uh, religious authority in Jerusalem plotting to kill 
Yeshua or Jesus, when, when they find him, when they see him, that they had heard about all of these things, these miracles that had happened. And there's this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, that's running around, that's performing all of these miracles. And it specifically says, talking about Caiaphas, the high priest, and talking that, that in uh, verse 53 of John chapter 11, it says this, that from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Yeshua no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim and there remained with his disciples. And then it now goes into the story in the Gospel of John about how the Passover came and how he then returned back to Jerusalem and made himself then known. And he then went to the temple and started teaching in all the different things in in, in Jerusalem in the uh, Passion Week and all of the week leading up to his crucifixion and to his sacrifice. But nevertheless, his brethren plotted against him, that they, that they wanted to kill him. And I guarantee you, the brothers of Joseph, all the things that had happened to them from the bad report to their father loving Joseph more than any of the other brothers, they absolutely did despise him. So they looked to him and they say, here comes this dreamer of dreams, let's kill him. Well, then also throw him into a pit. Now, I'm getting maybe a little ahead of myself in the parallels to Yeshua, but Yeshua himself also was cast into a pit. If you look at the tomb that he was put into after he dies and he goes into the tomb, goes into the heart of the earth, and you could do, draw a parallel as well about Joseph being thrown into the pit. And then, of course, he was sold. He was sold by his brothers. Now, along came some, some traitors, some, some sons of, um, of Ishmael, they come and they were a caravan that was going to Egypt. And so what happens is that in the story, the brothers, I think it was it said that, that Judah looked at him and he says, no, nah, let's not kill him, but let's sell him. Let's get some money here in the case of it. And they sold him for 20 pieces of silver. There's, of course, another parallel, of course. Judas, the disciple of the Messiah, sold out his master for silver. 30 pieces of silver in that case, 20 pieces of silver. Needless to say, he was sold out by his brethren sold by his brethren, and then goes to Egypt. Now, again, the parallels might be jumping around to either the early life of Yeshua or the later life of Yeshua, but we also have the story of Yeshua going to Egypt as well in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 14, where it talks, starting in verse 14, where it starts talking about how it was King Herod that was plotting against to kill the children of Judea, that then for his life to be preserved, he had to go to Egypt. So once again, we have another parallel with Joseph and the fact that Joseph, he was about to be put to death, but for his life to be spared, he instead went to Egypt. So there's a note, once again, and this follows the pattern of all the patriarchs, of course, where it was Abraham that also went to Egypt as well. Jacob will also go to Egypt. And so that there's this pattern of going to Egypt for then life to be preserved for one reason or another. In the case of Abraham, it was because of a famine. In the case of Joseph, it was his brothers that were plotting against him, so he had to go to Egypt. In the case of the Messiah, it was the king that was plotting to kill all the, all the children of Judea, and he had to go to Egypt to have his life preserved. Now, as when he went to Egypt as a slave, he became a servant. He became a servant. This is a man who once had royal robes and once was exalted amongst all, uh, above all of his brothers. Loved by his father. You had this guy named Jacob who was a descendant of Abraham. These were, he, he was a famous man as far as you could tell from, you know, in the ancient world that these were men that were known. 
And so there's, you have Joseph, you have a son of Abraham, a son of Isaac, a son of Jacob, this man. And so when he goes to Egypt, obviously sold by his brothers, he was then stripped of all of his garments and his belongings. By the way, that's another parallel to Yeshua as well, in the sense that his garment when he was crucified was stripped off of him and divided, and that it was obviously covered in blood when that was the case. Well, <laughs> that ties back to the story that the brothers told Jacob when they had sold Joseph. Remember, they took the coat, they dipped it in blood, and they gave, brought it to his, their father, and they said, do you recognize this? And then that's when he knew or believed that his son, his beloved son Joseph, had been killed by a wild beast or something. But needless to say, the garments were removed from him. The garments of honor were removed from him. In the same way that Yeshua, when his garments were torn off of him, he was shamed. All honor was stripped from him, and his garments were divided as well. <coughs> Excuse me. So he comes to Egypt, Joseph does, and he becomes a servant in the house of a master. Now, he actually, he's given, he's shown favor by his master in all cases. Joseph was always shown favor. He comes to, to the, to the house of his master and he's made the chief of all the slaves. He's made a, he's turned into a house slave and he actually has some esteem for a slave, if I could say that. And then later he's going to go to prison and then he's going to be esteemed above all other prisoners and to actually be an assistant to the, to the jailer, to the, and so in all cases he always still had this esteem that was given to him and granted to him by whatever master he found or, or was under. Yeshua, when he came to this earth, he was a servant. He presented himself as a servant. He washed the feet of his disciples. They called him master, and he went down, knelt to the dust of the earth, and washed their feet, which was the most humble thing someone could do, especially when you look into the historical context of what washing one's feet, what it entitled, what it meant, what it was when you, when you came in contact with somebody else's feet, when you saw the bottom of somebody else's feet. It was a, in ancient times and still in Middle Eastern cultures, that was a, that's a sign of, of, of servitude that you don't ever, the person who they show their feet to you, they rule over you. They have dominion over you. And so the Messiah bending down to wash the feet of his disciples shows how much of a servant he was teaching his disciples to be. And that he was, even though he's the Messiah, even though he's the son of God, even though he's proclaimed to be the king of the world, the king to reign in Jerusalem, he still presented himself as a servant. This is the humility of Joseph, as we see in the place where he finds himself in Egypt as a slave. He still showed himself to be humbly, to, to, to be humble. And that there in his master's house, of course, then we have the whole uh, story of Potiphar's wife, Potiphar being his master. And we have the wife of the master that looks at the young, the young man who's from, who's a Hebrew, who's a slave, and she tempts him. She entices him to sin and she tries to lay with him. And he, being a righteous man, a holy man, wanting to not do anything that wrong, he refuses. He refuses the temptation to sin. This is just like the Messiah, of course, who was tempted, of course, in Matthew chapter 4, also in, in the Gospel of Luke, where the devil himself tempted the Messiah, tempted him with, with, with all power, with food, with all of these things. Yet the Messiah was without sin, and Joseph himself refused to sin. In fact, if you look at the scripture, and you look at the story of Joseph, and read all about Joseph, you'd be hard-pressed to find any instance where the scripture describes that Joseph ever sinned. 
That there's a, sometimes we read about some people that they say this person committed atrocities and this person did this and Moses killed this man here. And you sit there and you're like, well, did, did that person sin? Well, you know, sometimes the scripture describes it. In the case of Joseph, does it ever show in the scripture that Joseph really truly committed a sin? You might think maybe the bad report that he said of his brothers, but then he was honored by his father because of it. Other than that, no. The Bible presents Joseph as a righteous man. As a sinless man, perhaps, even. And so then the Messiah himself, though tempted, committed no sin. Once again, and then in the story of Joseph, of course, it was Potiphar's wife that grabbed his garment, that his garment was left behind, and then the garment is what was used to accuse him, to accuse him that he had, that he had committed a sin, that he was attempting to, to lay with the master's wife, and it was then the master that, you know, thanks be to God, that didn't put him to death, instead sent him to prison. Once again, you have this other exchange of garment here when you have the garment that was taken and left. And, and, and in many cases, we see in the story of Joseph about his, his, something to do with his garments. We'll know, of course, in next week's portion about he's then going to be adorned once again with royal garments because he will be exalted all the way to the level of Pharaoh. But again, we have this story again with his garments being left behind. You might be able to draw a parallel if you're thinking about the shroud, the garment, the linen cloth that was left when the Messiah was raised. That's, that is what was left behind. And again, you can draw many other parallels and stories connecting the Messiah to Joseph. We always say here at this ministry, we say, what happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. And some of the parallels and the stories of what we have recorded of what happened to Yeshua, there are parallels and patterns that connect back to our patriarchs in the Old Testament. So he was tempted, but without sin, but he was falsely accused because he didn't sin. He didn't. Joseph did not sin, but even though he was sent to prison. So now let's go later in the book of Matthew, where it's talking about how when when uh, Yeshua was put on trial and Yeshua himself, he too was falsely accused. If you go to Matthew chapter 26. At verse uh, starting, let's say, verse 59, when it says the when Yeshua was before the Sanhedrin and he was uh, led away to Caiaphas, the high priest, and he appears before all of them, it says here in verse 59 of uh, Matthew 26, it says, now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false testimony against Yeshua to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward, and he said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it up in three days. And then it says, and, and Yeshua then has the return back to him, and he says, And the high priest arose and said to him, Did you, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Yeshua kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the, by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Yeshua said to them, It is as you have said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, this is when Yeshua was falsely accused. Falsely accused. He kept silent initially. Now, when he only responded when they directly asked if he was the Son of God. So then in the back to our story with Joseph, when he was falsely accused, what happened to him? And now I believe it does say that he sort of pled his case, but eventually he still submitted to what the punishment was. He obviously didn't fight back and he was sent to prison and he was, but him being righteous and being a humble man 
accepted the punishment. We have the story that follows him as he goes into the, into the prison and he's sitting there and I, you can put yourself in the life of Joseph and wonder what in the world is, is going on here. What sin has Joseph committed that is causing all of this burden to come upon him? Well, we know that God has a plan for Joseph's life. The plan is, is that through him, he's going to save the entire known world. Because what's coming is there'll be a famine coming and that through him, through his wisdom and through God's providence, protecting him, watching over him, Joseph will be the one who will be the vehicle by which all the world will be saved because of the punishment. This is the same thing with Yeshua. When Yeshua is crying out to the Lord, why have thou forsaken me? And all the things and, 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 and all, all the punishment that Yeshua received, why did that have to happen? It's so that we might have a savior so that we might have a hope and a sacrifice for our sins, for our willful, defiant sins, and that is why the Messiah suffered. That's why Joseph suffered, so that there would be a Savior and so that there would be a world that would not crumble to a worldwide famine coming later on in the story. Now, one of the most fascinating parallels, one of the most fascinating ones that, that I love when I read and look at the story of Joseph, though, is when he's in prison and he finds him, he finds two friends that he that he has there in prison that he ends up talking to, that he ends up uh, uh, befriending basically. And so then, as he's there in uh, uh, in prison, he interprets dreams. And you remember, he's uh, he's J- Joseph. He, he had he had his dreams and he sort of interpreted those dreams. Now he interpreted his own dreams and then spoke of them. And then when he spoke them to certain people. They didn't like hearing what the interpretation of the dreams were. So as time goes on, Joseph clearly learns, he clearly learns that he is, um, he matures, if you will, while in prison to understand, wait, you know what? The interpretation of the dream, that belongs to God. In fact, Joseph says to, to the ones that he are having these dreams, he says, do not interpretations belong to God. There's a humility in him that shows that it's like, look, you know, I might be able to interpret the dream through the wisdom of God, but it's his. It belongs to him. He doesn't take the authority of being the one that can interpret dreams. He gives all the authority to God. This also parallels, of course, the infinite humility of Yeshua. When he says all power and authority was given to him by his father who sent him. And there's a humility there and that it's all through the power of God that all of these things happen. Now, I mean, he does say, yes, I am the son of God. But it, it, but it, the humility of when he kept asking him directly, are you the are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Yeshua always spoke in parables. He always taught and he showed his humility once again as a servant to not just immediately proclaim that he had all this power and he had all this authority. Joseph did the same while in prison. So he finds himself facing his sentence in prison with two other criminals right there next to him. We have the, the baker and the cupbearer of Pharaoh. We don't know exactly how these men were, were thrown into prison, that we know that they were, they were cast into prison by the things that they did and they were confined there. And Joseph once again befriends them and they have these dreams. And one of them has a dream in which that the interpretation of the dream is that he is going to be uh, lifted up out of this pit and he's going to be restored. He's going to be exonerated. He's going to be, he's going to be brought out of the prison and he's going to become a free man again. While the other one was spoken of and that it says that he was going to face eternal judgment, that he was then going to die. It was going to come and pass on three after three days. 
that then he was going to die and he was going to hang on a tree. So these have these two other prisoners standing there with this Messiah-like figure known as Joseph. One of them is one that is going to be brought to death, that is going to have eternal judgment and punishment come upon him. And another one is going to be set free. I think this is one of the most beautiful parallels in all of the scripture. When we think and we wonder, what is the deal with the two criminals that are on the cross with the Messiah? Because so if we go to Luke chapter 23 and we have talking about how when he is put upon the cross and it says specifically verse 32 that there were two other criminals that were led with him and put to death. And when they came to the place, they were, he, they were crucified. And one of the criminals was put upon and crucified on his right hand and the other on his left. If you jump ahead to verse 39, it says this. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, him and said, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. You know, if, you know in a mocking tone, basically. If you have all this power and all this authority, then, then, then you're the son of God. Save yourself. Oh, by the way, save us too. We're all kind of in this together, right? But the other was righteous. The other criminal, though he was a criminal and accused, yes, he rebuked the other one, the one who mocked, and he said this, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? Look, when somebody is at the end of their life, at the end of their rope, you sit there and it's all like, there's no secrets there anymore. There's the things that you're going to take to your grave, and it's all like, at that point, you, if you're not going to show humility in that moment in time to where you're not going to be crying out to God that you might be saved from eternal damnation, in the moment of your execution, it's like, that, that, that goes to show the evil spirit that was in one criminal and the one of, of humility and understanding in the other. And one criminal rebuked the other. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. One criminal is telling the other, it's like, look, we committed sin. We absolutely are being punished for crimes we committed. I don't know if he knew that the one he was standing, he was right next to, the Messiah, that he was actually falsely accused and didn't commit crimes. He obviously didn't know, but so he, he didn't speak to that. But he knew the sins he had committed, and he's like, this is our judgment. But this man has done nothing wrong. This is what he said in the Messiah. That's what he, he, so he was aware of being falsely accused, that Yeshua had done nothing wrong. And he said to Yeshua, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Yeshua said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And he says, and he, and he, he does, and he, he remembers him. Well, then go back to Joseph. Remember the story of what happened to the, uh, to, to the baker that was uh, set free? Joseph says to him, remember me. It's kind of, the, the roles are reversed a little bit. The, one, the criminal to Yeshua said, remember me in your kingdom. And he says, I'll you'll be there. And said, it's turned around when Joseph, after interpreting the dreams, he says, no, remember me. Remember me. That I was the one that interpreted the dream. And the, Now we know for several years after that that uh, that the baker did not remember Joseph. It was only later in time, and this was going into the beginning of, our, of next week's Torah portion as well, when there's a dream that needs to be interpreted, a dream of Pharaoh. And that's when he does remember him, and that's when the remembrance comes and Joseph is brought up out of that prison and that, so that he could interpret the dream of Pharaoh, and he was remembered. This is, just the, this is just the first part of Joseph's life. This is just the first, well, he's a young man. He doesn't appear before Pharaoh until he's 30 years old. So we're talking about here this, the first 30 years of Joseph's life here and the things that he experienced. Yet we already have that many profound parallels to the life of Yeshua. 
all the way so much so that the parallels of the way they suffered punishment and that they were um, that they were in prison and how they were falsely accused and that they were um, carrying out their sentence is the same way that the Messiah carried out his sentence. And as he was killed and crucified and then he was put into a tomb. So if that's the case, if we're just looking at the chronology of that, well, then we got a whole lot more life of Joseph. So what would the rest of Joseph's life, if it truly does parallel the life of Yeshua, then what part does that parallel? Well, that, of course, parallels the life of Yeshua after the resurrection, after he has been raised. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, talking about how the story of Yeshua has gone into the world. And by, through that testimony of Yeshua and the believers and, and, and the disciples and the understanding and the knowledge and understanding of the Messiah, the Son of God, who is our Savior, that if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. That testimony has gone into the world and that many people have been saved because of it. And then we will get to look at the life of Joseph being raised up to the right hand of Pharaoh, the king of the known world at the time, the physical world of Egypt being the world power at the time, and being risen up to there to where then through him and his actions, all the world might be saved. This is the testimony of what Yeshua is doing in the world today. That through his testimony, through the, li- to, through the life of many people, from, from church fathers to, to people who have worked in ministry for the last 2,000 years, have worked to bring that testimony to the people so that they might be saved, so that they might be fed as if they were hungry. And that exactly is what Joseph will do with the rest of his life. So the parallel of the life of Joseph going to the life of Yeshua, yes, parallels what comes straight out of the New Testament. What obviously parallels the rest of his life as an older man and as he then is revealed to his brothers, obviously speaks more in the prophetic nature to what Yeshua is doing today on this earth and what he will do when he reveals himself at the end of the age. Fascinating parallels in the life of Yeshua and what the testimony of Yeshua was as recorded in the New Testament and how we can teach and understand the principles and the stories of old that we have in the Torah cycle. We can teach those same principles from the New Testament as well. So let us go before the Lord and pray. And I pray everyone has a wonderful rest of their Shabbat and their weekend. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your instruction, your teaching, Father. We thank you for the life of Joseph and for the life of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, your son, Father. We love you, bless you, and thank you, Father. You have taught us so many things, Lord, with the parallels in the scriptures. And Father, may we no longer separate your word. May we no longer divide your word. For anyone that stands up and speaks to one particular scripture being more important than another, Father, or how that we've been taught that some scriptures are done away with. Father, I pray that we would just rebuke those, uh, those teachings and instructions, Father. Father, that we understand that you are the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You are the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And that, Father, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but then you also are the God of Yeshua, the Messiah. May we not separate these things and may we understand all the teachings and instructions and all the profound things that you are doing in this world, Father, not only through the stories and prophecies of old, but Father, even in our testimonies that we live day in and day out. So as we speak of your word and your instructions, as we speak of the redemption of your son, our Savior, Lord, Father, may we be encouraged and strengthened in our faith as we study your word each and every week. And Father, as we are fed daily by your word that is like daily bread, Father, that nourishes us day in and day out. 
We love you. We bless you and thank you. In Yeshua's name, we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Bow down, kneel before the Lord our Maker. 